Al-Jazeera Podcast. Hi there, Malika Bilal here. I'm handing the mic to my Al-Jazeera colleague, Kevin Hurden. Enjoy. Choja Kim is 86 years old. She limps along a jetty toward the water. My legs. Even though I got surgery, my legs are still in pain. She winces as she lowers herself into the dark stillness of the East China Sea. But as soon as she hits the water, all of her pain disappears. Swimming in the ocean is fine. She's in her element now. As one of South Korea's sea women, she's been freediving in these waters, harvesting the ocean's bounty for most of her life. It's a tradition that dates back centuries, but may soon come to an end. Not because there aren't women willing to embrace this life, but because the planet Cho Ja Kim grew up in no longer exists. I'm Kevin Hurton, and this is The Take. Today I'm talking to Anna Cook, a journalist from Al Jazeera's digital news arm, AJ+. She traveled to Jeju Island to produce a short film on the Henyo. She's joining us to share what she discovered on the journey and why it had a lasting impact on her. Anna, I absolutely loved this piece you did. In Korea, the Henyo are very well known, but you discovered that you have a personal connection with them. So I actually found out kind of recently in my life that my own grandmother was a henyeo before she passed away. That was her first job in her early 20s. She passed away when I was around 13 years old. And so I never really got the chance to ask her any questions about it. I was always really curious to go to the island and kind of explore what it means to be a henyeo. You know, I had always wanted to learn more about my grandmother's past, um, kind of see where she got her values from. Can you walk me through an average day in the life of a henyo? I know it looks romantic from afar, but it's a pretty hard life. Yeah, for sure. They start out their day really early. Um, They get together at around 7 or 8 a.m. And they start diving as a group, and they dive for up to seven to eight hours in one day. Wow. And they're free diving, right? So they have no technology, no oxygen tank whatsoever. And so they just have this one buoyancy device called a tewak to help them kind of float up to the surface for a grasp of air. But they're just going back up and down, up and down for seven to eight hours a day. And they're able to dive around up to 10 meters at a time, holding their breath for around one to two minutes. Obviously, it's a very laborious and dangerous job as well. And so at the end of the day, which is, I would say, like 3 to 4 p.m., they kind of gather everything they've all harvested and they just dump it into one big pile um, to kind of see what they as a group collected. And then usually somebody from the fishery, local fishery, is there to see how much that they've harvested and decide how much they're going to buy. I saw that they were just transferring money to each other all equally, like equal and collective process. I imagine you're about the same age as your grandmother was Mm. when she was a henyo. Do you ever think about that as you get up for your normal day 
And now thinking about what your grandmother was doing at the same age. Yeah, for sure. It makes me feel very guilty about my privileged life. I feel like I live a very comfortable life compared to her, you know, waking up in the morning, uh, making my cup of coffee and can't imagine what she went through during colonialism, Japanese colonial era in Korea. Korea, for much of its troubled history, the small nation had been, in the words of an ancient Korean proverb, like a shrimp caught in a battle of whales. And then she saw the island go through war when North and South Korea split up. The country was very war-torn. And back at that time, this was really sort of the only ways of survival for them. And so I think she felt like she had to do this as a way to survive and make a living. Especially because my grandmother, she wasn't allowed to go to school, so she was never educated. But actually, one of the last memories I have of her was... When I used to visit her at her house, she was studying out of like an elementary school book. And so I think till she died, she was always like trying to become better. It definitely makes me feel very grateful for my life right now. Wow, what a great story. What the sea women are harvesting from the bottom of the ocean are sea conks. They are considered delicacies in countries like Japan. Anna, I guess it's a snail. It's a type of snail, isn't it? Yeah, sea snail. Cool. So it definitely hardens as you're trying to cook it. So did you try the conch? Yes. Um, in all sorts of different ways. Like it was marinated, it was fried. And I will say that it is, <laughs> see, it's not my favorite type of seafood. It has a very like hard uh, texture. And so is the conch a viable source of income? It used to be worth more than it is now. It's an issue because they are mostly exported to Japan as sort of a popular delicacy there. Um, it's not a very popular dish in Korea. And so the women were actually trying to sell to people, like mostly tourists who were visiting the island at the time. And so I, I wouldn't say that they earn a lot of money at the end of the day. I mean, it's definitely enough for them to get through the day but it's not a lot of money, I would say. But, you know, they have other sources of income, like they sell the hijiki that we saw. Sometimes they are able to harvest abalone, different types of sea life, but obviously now there is just way less sea life for them to harvest. And so that directly impacts the amount of money they're able to earn. It's amazing how the Henyo tradition of free-diving women has persisted for centuries on Jeju Island, which is south of the Korean mainland. How far back can you trace the Henyo tradition there? I think historians have traced it back to the 17th century uh, when Joseon Dynasty was around. And what is incredible is that they have continued the tradition. You know, it hasn't really changed much, I would say, except for maybe how the buoyancy device looks like. But pretty much everything has stayed the same. You know, they use very, very basic tools. Basically the same ones that they used during the 17th century. They've resisted adapting any sort of technology such as oxygen tanks or like better tools. And so I would say what's incredible is that they've upheld this tradition and it really hasn't changed much. Anna, your grandmother grew up in the wake of a truly tragic event that unfolded in the late 1940s. And it thrust the Henyo into a position of being the, 
I guess you could say the economic backbone of the entire island. Yeah, I think everybody on Jeju Island, they remember the April 3rd massacre, and that happened in 1948, which was only a few years after Korea had gained independence from Japan. And so they were fighting um, between North and South Korea. Of course, the U.S. was backing South Korea's government at the time. So there was a huge anti-communist sentiment. Korean citizens didn't want the peninsula to be separated. You know, they had just fought so hard to gain independence from Japan. And now here come these superpowers about to split the country up. And so there were a lot of these popular protests and a large one happened on the island. But the South Korean government, which was backed by the U.S. at the time, framed it as a communist insurgency and ordered a massacre to happen on these protesters, which resulted in around 30,000 men who lost their lives. That was 10% of the island, which meant every family knew of someone who died as a result of that massacre. So the women at this time really stepped up as breadwinners to sort of help the island's economy recover. The Hanya were really seen as vital. Yeah because of these new dynamics. That was what drove her to this job. Yeah, my grandmother was in her early 20s. That's when she joined because most of the women on the island at the time were becoming Henya to kind of step up into their roles as breadwinners. She had a few siblings, but she was the eldest daughter and I think she felt the obligation to sort of step up. But how is this Korean tradition being threatened by climate change? More on that after a break. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So you went to the island, you spent some time with Hanyo. What did you discover about your grandmother and your sense of identity by going there and sharing time with these women. What struck me the most is every single one of the Henyo were very vocal and everybody's voice was respected. That was really surprising to me because Korea is a very ageist society where age really matters. And so the women's ages span from 50 to all the way to 90 years old. It was incredible for me to see that everybody had a voice and they were very vocal and everybody respected each other. Yeah. Despite what age you were. I think I finally understood why my grandmother was one of the most vocal women that I met. And she always encouraged me to be louder about my voice and my opinions. I used to be more of a shy kid growing up, but she was really the only woman in my life, I would say, who really encouraged me to speak up. But the other thing is they really treated the ocean as if they had a relationship with the ocean. Their priorities were, you know, the survival of the whole community and the ocean. You know, they were very strict about what they harvested, what they touched underwater, when they dived into the water, just so that the ocean had enough time to replenish. They respected nature, which I really didn't see anywhere in my life growing up. I mean, they were practicing sustainability before it was fashionable. (laughs) Exactly. I think that 
their hope actually is for more people overseas to kind of see what they're doing, how they've resisted technology to show that actually if you respect the ocean and live in a sustainable way, more people in the community can profit for a longer period of time. I think that's key is that they treat the environment as a workplace that supports them for generations to come. It's not just about their own life at the moment. Yeah, and they go out of their way to avoid the tragedy of the commons. They know that if if one of them got a, a scuba tank, they could harvest the entire conch population in, in a certain area, but that's not going to be good for everybody. Yeah, a researcher there was saying that one person could easily put on an oxygen tank, dive in for two hours, and basically harvest more than what the entire group of women have harvested in the span of six to seven hours. But then no one would be left with any income or any harvest. And so they really sacrifice their selfish needs and desires to resist adapting any technology that allows them to fish more than their breath allows. Their priority is the benefit of the entire community and the sustainability of the ocean, the health of the ocean. Oh my God, the more I learn about these women, the more I love them. (laughs) I can see why you're so proud to come from this stock. But I'm afraid we have to probably talk about the bad news, (laughs) which is that this Mm. way of life is really, really in trouble. There are a few reasons why their population is under threat. In the 1970s, there were more than 10,000 of them, and now there's just around a few thousand, around 3,000 of them left because of a few reasons. One of them is because this is passed down among daughters in a family. There's just fewer daughters to inherit this job because now that Korea's economy is more developed, the women want their daughters to pursue other careers. And so they are encouraging more women to kind of venture out into the cities on the mainland. And so there's just less women left on the island. You know, there are these schools set up to try to train more women, but it's just been sort of unsuccessful because through the schools, the women see that it's a very hard and serious job to do. And most of them are not committed enough to go through the entire process to officially become a henya. But even if they were, the job might not even be there for them to do. Yes, right. And that is because there is just less to harvest in the ocean. More life underwater, they're dying out because of warming ocean temperatures. And it's just altered the type of life that's underwater as well. We saw this super harmful type of sea lettuce that completely took over one section of the coast. And they told me that that type of sea lettuce has killed off a lot of the life underwater. And that is a direct effect of global warming. And they call it desertification, where the ocean has essentially become a desert. So there's the two problems. There's the rising temperatures and the sea lettuce. I'm just curious, why does the sea lettuce kill everything? Is it just suck all the oxygen out of the water? I talked to the researcher who studies this, but she said that it's not a native species to Jeju Island. So it's been washed up from somewhere else and just completely taken over the coast. But she said that there is absolutely no nutrients from the uh, sea lettuce. And so it's actually just 
become trash. Um, it's become garbage for the ocean. It's just suffocating um, life for other things that should be growing and living there. And in terms of the sea temperatures, it seems like Jeju Island has it worse than other places. I mean, it's getting it's bad everywhere, but it's particularly bad there. So the sea temperature on Jeju Island itself is 2.6 times warmer than the global average. And that makes sense because Jeju is on the southern tip of the Korean peninsula. And so they're closer to the equator and they have more of a tropical climate there. In general, it's warmer there. The waters around them are severely affected by global warming. It seems to have snuck up on them. There is a moment where you spent time with women who just came out of the water mm-hmm. on a jetty, and they were kind of talking about the catch and how disappointed they were. And one of the women said, There's nothing. Things were all right up until a few years ago. The conches just disappeared in the blink of an eye. Yeah, exactly. I think to them, it did feel like it sort of happened out of nowhere. And so that just shows how recent all of these drastic changes are. And so they feel like they're at the forefront of global warming and climate change and the effects of it. They really see it in front of them. They said that in the past year or so, it's really gotten bad. You know, everything feels like it's just completely disappeared and the water is just so much murkier. So it's also harder for them to see down there. What steps are being taken by the government of South Korea to safeguard this livelihood? And are they going to be effective at all? One way that they're supporting it is the local government. Um, they set these regions, very restricted regions, where the henya can harvest. So that is just like a few miles off of the coast of certain regions. And so that is off limits for anyone, any tourists, any other fishermen who want to come. Um, they're not allowed to enter that zone. This is government mandated, so they take it very seriously. And there are these schools set up um, in certain regions of the island so that they can encourage more women. Actually, they started allowing men uh, to attend the schools as well. So, you know, they're encouraging more people to take part of the Henya tradition to try to get more people to inherit this job. Um, but again, we saw that only 5% of the graduates uh, became Henya officially just because of how physically difficult it is to be able to free dive for seven, eight hours a day is really tough. Is this going to be the last generation of Henyo? Everybody hopes that it won't be, but is afraid. I would say pessimists think that it definitely is the last generation. Even if there's a few handful young women who want to continue this, This practice just doesn't work if there's only a few women doing it. It works if there is a collective group working together. It's hard to say, but I hope that it won't be. I love this story, and I love that this was a real personal journey for you. Is there any sort of final thoughts on how researching this and learning about the Henyo changed your perception of not only your grandmother, but maybe your own life and your own traditions? Yeah, I mean, it really opened my eyes to the fact that we as humans can live in a way that is one with nature. 
I think growing up in a capitalist society, you're always taught to extract the most for your selfish gain. That is not a sustainable way of living for yourself or for the people around you. It was also just so empowering to see that women so old, late in their life are able to make a living and be so healthy and happy, just laughing all the time. They really had this sisterhood. It definitely changed my perspective on aging as well. Um, And just like gave me the source of energy that I come from a generation of really strong women helped me in a selfish way to change my perspective about my life. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Khalid Sultan with Miranda Lynn, Chloe K. Lee, Nagin Oliai, Sonia Bagat, Ashish Malhotra, Amy Walters, and me, Kevin Hurton, standing in for Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producers are Adam Abuged and Munira Aldasari. Alexandra Locke is our executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>